WCI back in the hot seat over disc brakes and motor cheating. E-Mountain Bikes steal the show at Sea Otter. And Shimano extends DI2 to XT. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, whipping up the pace. Fatty of FatCyclers.com, back churning out watts. Good to have you here, Fatty. Oh, man, what a windy weekend that was. Uh, you got uh, literally blown away. We're going to get to your little your race report from uh, your home state there. I have a story just... to tell. Good. Awesome. <laughs> uh, RedKitePrayer.com is the host side of the pace line and is the home of Patrick Brady. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks. Nice to be home. Yeah. Nice to be sleeping yeah. in my own bed again. I'll say you've had quite a schedule. <laughs> there was a what? There was a bike camping trip, then Sea at Otter, then a grasshopper event, all in less than a week. Yep. So um, if you'd like to take a nap during the podcast, just let us know. Okay. I'll tune back right. in later. <laughs> okay. Tell you what, we'll let Fatty talk first because he spent a weekend in the wind and the dirt and in a town that looks like it should be pronounced Hurricane Utah, but that would be a mistake, <laughs> wouldn't it, Fatty? Oh, yeah. The locals would correct you and say it's pronounced Hurkin, which adjoins Laverkin, Utah. And is very close. And don't snort. Those are actual names, and those are correct pronunciations. I believe you, but there is a certain implicit comedy. Oh, there is. But the the fact is, uh, Hurricane Utah (laughs) and Laverkin, Utah, I'm going to say it over and over, um, are fantastic venues for uh, what has become... Uh, one of my very favorite events, the six hours in Frog Hollow, and um, I don't I don't know what uh, why it's called Frog Hollow. Uh, it doesn't seem like a place where there would be frogs. It is a Saint George Slick Rock style desert uh, with uh, joining up uh, trails that uh, are baked earth and single track and slabs of uh, of sandstone everywhere about one hour lap 13 miles i think around a thousand feet of climbing per lap and it is just a great event they have a six hour event and then they have a 25 hour event on essentially the same course every year uh Cimarron Chacon, I'm probably murdering her last name, and I apologize for that, Cimarron, but it is just a a great event um, where you can do one person or two people, and I think there's a three-people category, but this year, uh, I went riding in the solo Masters 50-plus category, my first year as a 50-plus racer. My uh, wife, Lisa, uh, a.k.a. The Hammer, went riding in the women's solo single speed category and uh my daughter melissa uh went racing in the women's solo category uh her second mountain bike race ever and, and she I, goes for I, a six-hour event yes a six-hour event her first was the true grit course which was a 50-mile event on the um on the very technical single track in and around St. George, Utah. Um just, you know, so she's she's got a lot of her mom's tenacity and power in <laughs> so uh the I, I'm going to try to condense this. Go to my blog for the full version. I'm gonna be writing that up as a multi parter this week. But uh the wind was incredible. Uh gusting up to forty miles per hour I very nearly went to the hospital for stitches or who knows what it would have been. I got very lucky as I put on my shoes before the event, my truck door was open. I was bending over tying my shoes and a hard gust of wind slammed the door shut, missing my head by about an inch. You know, I felt it whistling by and, you know, slammed it hard, the kind of slam that you hear a car door make when it is, you know, when someone is angry. Um, the uh, it was windy enough that uh, porta potties were getting blown over. Um, oh man, all, all over. Um, so never open the door for one of those that has been blown over, and I'll leave that to the imagination. Frankly, I just don't want that 
that uh, mental image in my head. <laughs> but the what has always made this course great is the descent. After you've climbed for five miles, you have a descent on what is called the gem single track. And it is a baked earth uh, with lots of little swoops and bank turns. And it is fun and very fast and grippy as all get out. And it's just a wonderful, fast, fun, um, barely technical descent. And with a headwind going at literally 40 miles an hour, it made it so that that part, the part that I've always looked forward to, uh, you know, in every single lap I've ever done in this race, instead became just a slog. Just if you did not pedal and work your heart out, it would bring you to a standstill. The wind was hard enough that you had to pedal to go downhill at all. It's not like you. it would slow you down. It would literally stop you, bring you to a standstill, um, making it so that it was just... Uh, impossible to record a super fast time and that matters because you have to do um your final lap has to begin no later than five hours into the race and it since it is at best a one hour effort to uh to go around if you know if you can keep doing 59 minute laps you can get a sixth lap in but with that wind, that was never a possibility for me. I got five laps in. I was pretty happy with that. But at the last straightaway, another guy came. I, I you know, I heard the pedals, cut, you know, sort of really ramping up. I look over, and it's a guy I don't know, but I can see he has gray hair. And I'm thinking, this guy re- knows who he's racing against. You know, another 50-year-old guy. I didn't really care too much. I had no idea where I was. But he turns it on. I turn it on. We go side to side just, you know, fighting each other. And I'm pretty happy about this. You know, it's like, oh, this is a cool way to finish it. But he is stronger than I am. And he gets to the finish line before I do. And I realize only afterward as I'm looking online that I had missed being in third place. By four seconds because this guy beat me at the line so um Oof. that brings me to yeah i mean in a way oh that's too bad but in a way also a really cool way to lose to a guy who put in a superhuman effort at the end i mean he beat me fair and square by having an amazing kick at the end of a six-hour race that's awesome you know it's an awesome way to uh for it to finish, whether you were the guy who is on the winning end or on the losing end, you, you battled it out. That was cool. Um, afterward, you know, I find out that the podium goes five deep. And so I put out a question while I was waiting for the award ceremony. Are five deep podiums at local events goofy? I and, saw that. <laughs> and it was not a hypothetical question because I was the fourth person in a five deep podium. Um, you know, there are 20 guys in the 50 plus group. And so that means that, uh, you know, five out of 20, that's 25% of the racers get on the podium, um, <laughs> which is, I, I felt a little bit embarrassed to go and stand on the floor by the podium, especially as a five foot seven guy. And, you know, all of the guys on the podium are considerably taller than I, I, I look extra short. And you know that's okay, I suppose, but still. Um, so what what is your what is your thoughts, guys? Is is a five deep podium silly, especially at a local event? Depends on the number of entrants. I mean, you know, look, I think promoters do it for a good reason. They want to reward as many people as they can. It helps, you know, it helps with uh, return customers. Uh, they get hmm. more business that way. Everyone wins. It's kind. Of, it's also this kind of yeah. uh, this new way of doing things. You know, you watch kids sports now, and they all sure. get trophies, even if they come in last place. So, um, I agree, though. On a smaller event, when the field is less than ten, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's keep the podium to three, for goodness sakes, and, and get it over with. Yeah. But if you've got to field a fifty. Sure, why not? Five is not, five's not bad. 
Hmm. What do you think, Patrick? I I think uh, a five deep podium, if you have five riders to fill the five deep podium, go for it. I mean, the moment we start, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, you know, in a, in a previous uh, episode of my life, when I had a fiance uh, who was a racer, um, you know, she'd she'd be bummed when she would get, you know, second of three people in her category. You know, they'd run her category with another category. Um, and she'd have a tough time telling who she was racing against and whatever, you know, she'd wind up on the podium and, you know, she'd be one of the three people on the podium who, you know, also coincidentally happened to be the entire field. And when she'd get bummed out about that, I'd, I'd have to remind her, Hey, you know, you raced against everybody who was there. It's not your fault. The field wasn't bigger. You know, you can't go, uh, Mm -hmm. demeaning that because more people didn't show up. And so if I'm not going to be some weirdly inverted sexist pig, I got to say, hey, podium's podium. All right. Fair go enough. Then I, then I podiumed. I will, I'll you go did. ahead and own it. I, I, or, or at least I stood on the floor by the podium, and I'm happy about that. The better news uh, in all of this, though, is how the women in my family did. Uh, Lisa the Hammer, on her solo single speed, uh, went toe-to-toe with Heidi Volpe, who is a very legit racer out of California. Um, and in a true, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm about to go sexist here, but this seemed like something that only women would do. They joined forces within the first lap and rode the whole thing together, just you know, racing hard, but also talking and making good friends. Did they trade recipes? I had a girlfriend who did that once. They (laughs) traded recipes in the race. I'm not going to go that sexist, Patrick. Well, no, no. I'm I'm not trying to be sexist here. But I mean, literally, I I got on the phone. Sure. Well... (laughs) They made good friends, and you that's know, dynamite. And, and honestly, that's not that's not too sexist because a couple of years ago, I was racing single speed, and there was a guy named Mike who was my uh, single speed doppelganger, and we wound up uh, within moments of each other for the entire day as well. Um, but these two went at it hard. They finished one second apart. Um, uh, Heidi actually uh, reined it in in the final stretch so that they could finish our you know their arms raised together um and rightly so uh took first lisa took second but the real story here is in her first six hour race ever melissa took first in the women's solo category by i think five minutes over second place the the open women's category well, there there is just one women's category, um, the, the women's solo category, which included um, some very strong riders and very experienced riders, and she killed it. Wow! Um, I am really looking forward to seeing how this girl does at Leadville this year because she is showing some tenacity, some strength. And now we can say some endurance. Uh, this, it, you know, True Grit, we thought maybe it's a fluke. By now we're saying, nope, this is no fluke. So it's fun to see, your, uh, see someone from your family really sort of uh, rock it off and show some, some real, uh, real skill, some real ability, and uh, some real promise. That's dynamite. That is just yeah. amazing. Yeah, well, yeah. Awesome work to everyone in the uh, Fatty family for a, a great uh, effort out there at the Frog Hollow, right? Six <laughs> hours of frog or S- 24 six, hours of frog? Six hours in Frog Hollow. And then in uh, with the time change in the autumn, there's the 25 hours in Frog Hollow every year. I think uh-huh. I just took like the entire podcast time, didn't I? Did I just take our full hour? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I just talk and talk and talk. You get me started. You know how it's going to go. <laughs> okay, guys, you know, just after we recorded the last episode of The Pace Line, word crossed that movie star writer Francisco Ventoso had been slashed in the leg during Perry Roubaix. The injury was pretty gruesome, if you've seen it online, plenty of photos. In fact, he wasn't bashful about tweeting out 
some of his injuries. Ventoso claims it happened when he ran into the back of another rider who had disc brakes in Roubaix. Uh, Ventoso, after being stitched up, wrote a letter calling for the use of discs to be stopped. Now, this is the first full season the UCI has allowed teams to use them in any race they like. And we'd seen some limited use by teams to date with only uh, two or three using discs during Flanders and Roubaix. Ventoso, in his letter, made two very strong claims. One was that his injury was minor compared to what could have happened. He said, I didn't get my leg chopped off. It was just some muscle and skin. But could you imagine that disc cutting a jugular or an artery? I would prefer not to. Uh, Ventosa also claimed that while he was in the ambulance being treated, an edX rider, Nicholas Mays, was also picked up and he had a gash to his knee, which Ventoso claims was caused by a rotor. Now, edX management says they don't know what happened, but in the end, the UCI decided to yank disc brakes for, uh, from use for the time being. Uh, the move was requested by the associations that represent the teams and the riders. UCI said it will now continue with its, its extensive consultations on the subject by way of its equipment commission, which is made up of representatives of teams, riders, mechanics, fans, commissaires, and, of course, the bicycle industry. Wow. So the UCI does a full reversal on disc brakes. Do we have an overreaction here, Patrick Brady? Uh, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean... I, um, you know, cuts of this nature, they're, they're no joke, you know, and this is going to probably cause him to miss a race or two, which is, you know, certainly unfortunate. Um, but, uh, as I wrote, um, in a recent post, um, you know, this is one of those things that has been badly managed from top to bottom, uh, the UCI, uh, did a really bad job of, of implementing this new rule. Uh, the component companies did a bad job of uh, introducing uh, disc brakes uh, to the pro riders. Um, and then, you know, the, the riders themselves have proven to be, you know, remarkably close-minded about all of this. And let's not forget that, you know, uh, Ventoso says he didn't even notice his injury at first. So he's not even the most reliable witness. Nothing against him personally, but we just don't have great data. We don't know for mm-hmm. fact that his cut was caused uh, by a disc rotor. It certainly mm-hmm. could have been. Um, they, you know, they are sharp as hell. Um, but last summer when I was at a product intro um, in Wyoming, we were actually off in Idaho doing a ride. And uh, I went down and got a gash to my calf. And because my bike had disc brakes on it, to a person, everyone there immediately assumed that it was the discs, uh, the disc rotor that had caused uh, the gash, when in fact it was actually a pedal. Um, <laughs> and no one was willing to believe me until I showed them blood on the pedal. Um, you know, and this is why actually investigating things is really kind of important. Um, so I, to me, know. it seems, oh, I was going to say to me, it seems so curious that one accident would cause this kind of reaction. I mean, if, where we recently saw multiple deaths caused by motor vehicles colliding with cyclists, but no one's causing, calling for a ban of all motorcycles. One person gets a cut on their knee and we are pulling a piece of equipment. People crash, people get injured, people get hurt all the time as part of bicycle racing. Are you saying and this is an overreaction? This is the, well, this is the first time we've ever seen some something, you know, a, a single instance of a possibility of something happening. And let's stipulate that he's right, that he got cut by a disc rotor. Sure. There are other things that have injured people before. Bikes have sharp parts. The surfaces we ride on have sharp parts. We are going fast. We are colliding with each other. If you use this kind of thinking, it is an argument against the entire sport of bike racing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that whole buzzsaw thingy they call a chain ring, um, that's sort of problematic. (laughs) And and then there's the fact that, you know, when you look at 
you know, the admittedly rather gruesome photos of Ventoso's leg. And, and I'm just going to back up a second here and say, I'm really bummed about his injury. It's really unfortunate. I'm, I'm really sorry for him. Uh, I've been reading about this guy for a while. I like him a lot. He seems really bright, uh, down to earth, you know, very cool. Um, but, you know, he doesn't know. And there are, there are questions in my head about, you know, what would it take to get a rotor in position to do, you know, basically a deli style meat slicer cut to his leg. It's a very shallow cut. Um, and I, I wonder just how easy it would be. Is that even possible in the rear triangle? Is that only something possible um, at, you know, with the front wheel, um, with the fork not taking up a lot of room? Uh, we know that there were riders out there using wheels with bladed spokes. You know, I can kind of see that maybe being a, a possibility for how this happened. Um, you know, we just, we don't know. And that the UCI would capitulate based on one open letter from one rider. Um, and it's not that we know that, you know, there's just a mass resistance to it, uh, that the UCI didn't make everyone switch over to discs all at once so that everybody was on the, essentially the same style of brake, so that braking response would be, uh, more uniform throughout the Peloton. I, you know, that was just, that was bad management on their part. As much as I love Brian Cookson, um, as John Bradley has pointed out in a, a recent essay of his, um, you know, Cookson's problem is he's not exerting enough control where Hein Verbruggen and Pat McQuaid uh, exercised way too much control. We need Cookson to actually get his foot back on the pedal and direct the UCI. And a lot of people might say, oh, boy, the equipment people must be freaking out over this now. But really, do, do the equipment manufacturers really need the Pro Peloton and this with disc brakes? Won't this be a consumer-driven choice in the end? Uh, do we really look to the pros for disc brakes? Who cares what they're doing with disc brakes, at least? Well, traditionally, all of the technical uh, developments have been based on the requirements of pro racing. You know, STI, the integrated control lever, uh, you know, ergo, uh, you know, those things were driven by the requirements of racing. Uh, stronger front derailers, you know, the ability to shift from the little ring into the big ring while you're out of saddle. That was driven by the requirements of pro racing. So, you know, disc brakes are the, the first occasion in history where consumers are moving to the most advanced uh, technology available ahead of the pros. How silly does that make cycling look? Oh, I think it makes, I don't think it makes cycling look silly. I think it makes it look independent that the two worlds can exist, that we can have. I mean, look, golf has some of the same issues. Uh, Pro golfers, when they use equipment that is, that is designed for the amateur they go out and kill it. They make a mockery of the game. Um, so the, the two worlds don't need to be on the same page um, and enjoy or or compete in the same activity. Uh, I think there can be two worlds here. And certainly with disc brakes, you know, they make a lot of sense for consumers. If the pros don't think so, if they really are hung up about this and they really can be, they can be stubborn as all hell with this stuff. Fine, mm-hmm. let them be stubborn. Uh, the manufacturers should focus on us. Focus on the end user for once and let us decide. And I think that, that consumers will make the right choice in this case. Well, the UCI has another big issue on its hand, uh, and that is a report out of uh, a French TV station and an Italian newspaper. You know, they did a joint investigative report on the subject of motors in bikes. What they did here, guys, is they used a fake video camera that was actually loaded with heat sensors and pointed it at bikes in the Strada Bianca and a smaller stage race in Italy and detected motors in seven bikes used by professionals. The report did not name the riders. It did claim that some of the bikes had motors that were activated by magnets and wheels and that the system could be controlled via Bluetooth by personnel and team cars. Uh, mechanical doping, of course, uh, has been a subject here on the pace line, notably with uh, 
the discovery of a motor at Cyclocross Worlds and one Femke Vandendriesch's bike. Uh, now, the UCI has responded and was, in fact, part of this 20-minute report. Um, Cookson was in the report. He looked at the video images and attempted to, to respond. They said that they've looked at their or looked at the thermal imaging that was used in the report. They've also looked at x-rays and ultrasonic testing. But by far, they feel their most cost-effective and reliable and accurate method is their magnetic resonance testing that they use uh, in a tablet. They actually have these tablets they walk around with and hold them up to bikes and try to detect whether or not uh, there's any uh, you know, motorized device inside them. Um, I watched the report this morning, this French-Italian report. It's, you know, the video itself that you see is just a lot of red and yellow images of cyclists riding by. And I suppose in some cases you can see what looks like heat sources, whether it be in seat tubes or in hubs. But it's, it's hard to tell much beyond that. Yes, the report and the reporters went to other experts and they pointed out what they thought yeah, that could be a motor but clearly, there's nothing conclusive here. And the fact that they didn't name the riders um, is a little odd, you know. But um, what do you guys think? Do you think that we could be on to something greater here? I mean, Greg LeMond talked about, you know, they should ban, they should really be looking at wheels too. And this report found evidence that, or supposed evidence, that there's motorized activity going on using wheels do you think there's uh, there's more to this? I'm. I think. Go ahead. Now go ahead, Patrick. Okay, I'll go. Uh, you know, I, I think that there can be plenty to this, and I'm heartened that it is that journalists are leapfrogging the UCI in terms of detecting this. There needs to be an independent uh, investigative uh, body that is engaged in doing this uci is going to try doing a good job but without a third party doing its own investigation it's easy to get complacent and whether uh, you know whether this is just moving another chess piece it's like oh wow so thermal thermal imaging works you can imagine the cheater is going huh well i guess it's time to go ahead and start getting some thermal insulation around our motors and, you know, it, it always just progresses forward. But you have people who are outside the governing bodies keeping everyone honest. And that, in principle, is a good thing. Patrick? Um, well, first, um, ditto. I completely agree. It's nice to see uh, that journalists are doing what the UCI has failed to do. So we really need to applaud um, their industry, shall we say. I am floored, utterly floored, that there are wheels out there um, that have the ability to provide assistance that aren't just immediately recognizable, you know, the way e-bike hubs are ordinarily. Uh, this is this is an extraordinary expense to develop something like this and that people are going to the trouble to do it. It just, it, it reminds me of Balco. It's like, really? We're going to invest that kind of money on, on skirting the rules and just to mm -hmm. cheat. It floors me. Um, the, well, the, the reporters did go and talk to a wheel maker mm -hmm. who claims that he has provided wheels to pros and yes, uh, one of the reasons that only pros have gotten them and they're only, they're only seen on pro bikes so far is because they're terribly expensive, something like 50,000 euros for, for a set of wheels that, that are motorized. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's maybe why... And, and, the, and the, the devices that he showed the reporters were just tiny. So yeah, like you, Patrick, it's like, Boy, wheels, the hub should be massive then, and why would you even need thermal imaging? should be plain as day, but <laughs> they found something otherwise. Yeah, and the, the, the heat signatures, you know, coming from the seat tubes, um, you know, that they found so many, I'm also, you know, really surprised and dismayed by that. But again, I really love that they're doing this. I, you know, a few years ago, uh, the when the the idea of motor doping first came out, 
Um, and Fabian Conchalara was accused of it. I still think that's laughable. You know, the, the dude was winning races long before any of this technology even existed. Uh, but granted, it's out there. Uh, my, my reaction to the first uh, allegations uh, was to say we should just laugh at this. Um, and I was dead wrong. Um, I'm utterly dismayed at just how low life some racers are willing yeah. to go to win a race or, or just perform better. This is, this is a real disappointment. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to keep the uh, motorized thing going. E-mountain bikes, a polarizing <laughs> piece of equipment. The pace line lays out the relevant arguments. And Patrick is a first person on the first e-mountain bike race. That's next on the pace line. Just speaking from, from personal experience, over the last couple of seasons, my bike's been checked and, and dismantled at least half a dozen, oh, at least a dozen times, sorry. Um, so I, I think they are taking the threat seriously. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty, Patrick, and Michael here. Thanks for being with us. Uh, everywhere we looked at Sea Otter, uh, there were e-mountain bikes. They were just buzzing the entire expo area. There's even an e-mountain bike race that Patrick is going to tell us about in a few minutes. But first, how did we get here? Well, I can think of uh, the three of us can say that we're glad to see e-bikes for road use. And they've gotten some legitimacy, in fact. Uh, they've, they make a hell of a lot of sense for commuters, especially those with no showers at work. And so when Governor Brown signed a bill into law late last year, the bill that classifies e-bikes, that is, we said, great, cool, it's about time. Basically, to be an e-bike, you must be one of three things in California. Class one is a bike that is pedal assist only, and that assistance cuts off at 20 miles per hour. Class 2 is the same power assist threshold, but the bike also has a throttle on it. And then there's the Class 3, and that's an e-bike that provides assistance up to 28 miles per hour. Class 1 and 2 bikes can go anywhere. A normal bike can, unless a local government says otherwise. And the Class 3 must stay off bike paths. The industry provided the big push for the legislation and was led by Larry Pizzi of the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association. I spoke with Larry about why California was the first state targeted, New York's e-bike dilemma, and the biggie, e-mountain bikes. California, they weren't, they're not illegal, but they were treated uh, and governed pretty much like mopeds. Were, uh, you know, they, they used old moped regulation from the 1970s. New York... Uh, e-bikes are technically illegal because they consider them uh, motorized and anything motorized in the state of New York has to be registered like a motor vehicle and you can't do it because they don't have, you know, VIN numbers like an automobile or a motorcycle might have. Mm -hmm. Uh, The separate beast here seems to be off-road. There's an attitude, I'm sure, out there that you're running into right now from traditional mountain bikers. You're saying, you're after my sacred single track uh, technical trails, and I don't want folks uh, crowding those trails with your electric bike. Folks that otherwise couldn't be on these trails because physically maybe they're not capable of, of riding up to them. They should not be on these trails that I consider sacred. Is that an issue that needs to be addressed? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the social impact, right? You know, um, and, and it's completely understandable. I mean, you know, I, I've, been, I've been involved in mountain biking, you know, back to the advent of the mountain bike. And there was a period of time where we, the industry produced mountain bikes and then full suspension mountain bikes. And, uh, you know, the trails were getting shut down because there was an onslaught of, uh, you know, of, of use. Uh, most people that are riding e-mountain bikes are not looking for a gnarly single track experience um, where they're riding for the most part you know are multi-track trails there are fire access roads they're you know forest service roads uh, generally they're not exposing themselves to you know a, a gnarly single track experience and and as a result 
we don't think that there's going to be a tremendous amount of user conflict in that regard. Guys, like I said, street use, it seems to be that's an easy one for e-bikes. Yeah, some people are still opposed, but come on, that just makes sense. The dirt now is a whole another question. Now, I don't think any of us are on the pace line here are prepared to take sides on this issue. This issue it's very polarizing. We heard it at Sea Otter over and over, for and against, why and why not. But, fellas, what do you see are the main issues that need to be addressed? Fatty, I'll start with you. What, what do you think, what are the things that need to be cleared up here before anything can move forward? Whether they are allowed on Strava. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's face it, guys. That's all anyone's thinking about, right? Is some guy with a moto, uh, you know, the motor built in is going to take my KOM. You know, that that's where it really is. No, it, the reality is I think that the, the concerns of having some guy come and just ride right up by you, uh, perhaps uh, people who ordinarily would not be accessing trails that we know and love because they are difficult suddenly having the means but not the skill to get on those trails um we are snobs as uh as cyclists who have developed our legs to let us get to places that are hard to get to and when you add a motor to the mix, suddenly the barrier we have cleared is cleared by people who we don't think have paid the dues. And that's something that we are are bothered by. And as someone who has paid his dues, you know, with 20 years of biking to get myself into the shape that I can do the kind of trails that I love and that are pretty... Um, pretty clear most of the time because they are hard to get to and it takes some work to get up them. Um, you know, it's for the same reason that I don't like seeing guys shuttle to the top of a hard climb and then bomb down it. You know, I, I want people to earn their descents. And this is another way for people to not earn their descents. And we could start seeing trails get uh, a lot more use and get a lot more torn up. So, you know, while you said, Patrick, you probably were not ready to make a judgment, maybe I am making a judgment. I'm saying that I want people to earn their access. I don't want people ruining trails that I love. So, and I think that e-bikes might be, you know, I don't care about racing or anything like that. I worry about people, um, you know, I worry about congestion and I worry about people, um, getting you know people intruding on my solitary experience you know how snobby is that yeah patrick i guess the issue is just not easy you've got an industry that clearly wants to make a push here um but there are purists who say wait a second there these these trails get enough use and they're crowded enough as it is and then advocacy is kind of sitting in the middle uh well uh, from what I've seen so far, advocacy is not sitting in the middle. Uh, advocacy is like, you know, burn these things. Don't even, don't even mention these things. Uh, don't let the Sierra Club know these things even exist. Um, and I, I fundamentally understand the challenge in terms of how groups like you know the Audubon Club and the Sierra Club are likely to react to the notion of e-mountain bikes if they don't like a if they if their dislike of cyclists is directly proportional to the speed the cyclist is moving they're really going to hate e-mountain bikes um i think that's a safe one you know what a lot of people don't understand is the reason the bike industry is pushing this issue of e-mountain bikes is because they've taken off wildly in Europe. And this is a study in contrast of culture. Um, in Europe, people aren't losing their minds over this. Uh, they're simply accepted. Some people ride regular mountain bikes. Some people ride e-mountain bikes. Some of them are on single track. Some of them are confined to, you know, what we think of as fire roads over there. Um, and, you know, everyone kind of coexists nicely. Uh, this is Merca where we can't do that. Um, and to just play devil's advocate to Eldon's position a little bit, we we might do well to understand that if there are more people who think of themselves as cyclists out on trails, then we've got more people 
who could conceivably become members of IMBA or the Sustainable Trails Coalition. Um, and suddenly, you know, our numbers grow and suddenly we have more clout in uh, advocating on our behalf for, you know, more trail access, uh, building more trails. You know, I mean, when you think about it right now, mountain biking is the only uh, the only user group out there that is actually creating more trail infrastructure. We're, you know, we're the ones driving the building of new trails on public lands. Uh, the hikers, you know, they just want us out of there altogether with. The equestrians, pretty much the same attitude. And, you know, to have more people on trails suddenly means we've got a great argument for why there ought to be more trails and more fire roads. I'm yeah. not necessarily in favor of uh, Larry's uh, Larry's assumption that all these people are just going to stay on fire roads. Um, initially, that's probably pretty true. But if we take the long view and look at this uh, from the standpoint of uh, strength in numbers and what that could mean for advocacy, it could really help us overall. In fact, you weren't saying keep them off all trails, right? Like if you saw an e-mountain bike on a fire road, um, it, it, I, I sense that you're most concerned about those tough to get spots that require skill that, um, mm -hmm. need and, and areas that we are, we're trying to manage traffic a little bit better. I'm a hundred percent in favor of having e-bikes on any, uh, surface that a Jeep can legally go, right? You know, yep. any Jeep trail, any fire road. That's you know. There's no reason in the for the that a, a an e bike shouldn't go there for the same reason. There's no reason a motorcycle shouldn't go there. Well, they're um, currently allowed there too. Yeah, they can go yeah, there right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's only the really narrow, really pristine, really hard to get to stuff that I am kind of protective of. You know, the the trails that I don't talk about on the blog because they yeah. I kind of guard them jealously. And I, you know, I, the, the fact is I, I'm probably overreacting in the way that, you know, that the, that I've always rolled my eyes at the Sierra club for overreacting. Um, we all tend to, uh, you know, there are certain things that we have that we don't want to share and e-bikes make, uh, these spaces perhaps a little bit too easy for those guys to get to. As far as our two main groups, IMBA and STC, you know, IMBA has taken a little step towards, um, you know, welcoming e-mountain bikes. They say they recognize e-mountain bikes, particularly those equipped with type one pedal assist, that they're substantially different from other motorized uses and may warrant a separate category and new management strategies. Sustainable Trails Coalition is much more plain and neutral on the topic. Uh, they oppose legalizing electrical powered or assisted off-road bicycles on any wilderness trail anywhere in the U.S. But that said, they're not getting into the fight over this because they say they're clear. Their goal is to simply open up wilderness areas to mountain biking, and they're not. They don't want to get into the equipment debate at this point. Um, now, Patrick, you did the first e-mountain bike race at Sea Otter. And again, we're not going to get into what you think about whether or not these should be allowed on trails, but give us an idea about the experience, about what you thought of the bikes. Yeah, so uh, there was an industry challenge, they called it. Uh, people from the bike industry, they just wanted to get them out on bikes. And since there are uh, so many uh, current and former racers uh, at Sea Otter, they had... A bunch of us come out. Uh, I believe there were 30 people to start the race. Uh, there were also some other categories of, you know, people who just own them. And they said, you know, here, we'll, we'll offer you uh, categories as well. It was a 1.7 mile course, I believe is what it was. Um, and it was uh, on a hillside, you know, directly viewable from the expo area. And uh, the course was... Uh, dusty. It was pretty dry there. Uh, dusty. Lots of off-camber turns. Uh, frequently off-camber on hillsides. Um, a, truly a difficult course with two 
uh, brief man-made rock gardens. And because I had another event coming up the next day that was actually very important to me, I chose to walk those sections. Um, I was on a high bike, full suspension model. Um, SAG wasn't set up for me. You know, it wasn't perfectly sized, but there was a quick release. So I was able to get pretty close on saddle height got my pedals on there so I could have some clipless pedals and went and tore around for six, five or six laps. Uh, I, yeah, uh, six laps, I believe it was, um, with a bunch of other guys. And can I just say it was silly fun? (laughs) I, you know, yeah, you can say that (laughs) it, it was, you know, there are times where you, you just kind of forget about everything else, um, all the political stuff, all the technical questions, all the, you know, all the access issues and attitudes and whatnot, and you're just pedaling a bike. And it was great, crazy fun. Um, and I can say that I can see how uh, e-mountain bike racing as a thing of its own could really be quite an interesting thing. If you had a three-hour race where... Uh, the battery charge was sufficient only to provide enough assistance to get you through, say, an hour of it at, you know, at full burn um, so that you were required to think about managing uh, the amount of assist that you used through the race. Uh, you could end up with a, a really interesting piece of strategy as it was on our course. You had to be kind of careful which mode you rode along in. So we were all on class one bikes. They had an assist, but they did not have a throttle. You had to pedal. Um, And they all cut off at 20 miles an hour, which for me forced a really interesting question early on in the race because there were some quick spots. Uh, Strava says I hit 30 miles an hour at one point, but there were times where you'd be right around 20. And so Hmm. do you kill yourself to pedal a 45 pound bike at 21 or 22 miles an hour, or do you back off and continue to use uh, the assist so that you're just going 20 miles an hour and you're not killing yourself? Since I was trying to save my legs, I did the latter. Uh, but you know, on those off camber and dusty spots, uh, it was important to back off. You know which mode you were in, so you didn't spin a wheel. Um, you know, I. So how much how much energy did you spend? handling the bike itself because they're heavier bikes it seems like throwing one of those bikes side to side moving it through anything technical is going to require more energy than than a traditional bike uh you know they're really well balanced and so it's not like i was on a motocross bike you know this i mean we're we're yeah it doubled in weight but we're still only talking 40 pounds it you only notice the the weight if you pick it up and then you think what on earth am i playing with here but handling the bike was not a big deal um you know it was reasonably stable it was sufficiently maneuverable um so you know that really wasn't a concern to me out there uh mm-hmm. I, I you know i found it really easy to handle the bike um, you know, what was interesting was, you know, when I would get into some of those loose turns and whatnot, you had to be kind of careful. Uh, the, the high bike I was on used a, a Bosch mid drive. Uh, so at the crank and it applies power, um, very quickly, you know, it's super responsive. And if you were in the highest mode, they call turbo, uh, and you really goose the pedals, um, you can actually cause the bike to wheelie if you're in a, a fairly low gear. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, you had to think a little bit about not only what gear you were in, but which mode you were in and um, how hard you wanted to get on the pedals at any given moment. You know, bottom line, like I said, it was an awful lot of fun. I'd like to have an e-bike for around town. I don't need an e-mountain bike, but they aren't the Antichrist. Right. Well, something's got to give here because we certainly have a very powerful industry that's lining up. I mean, High Bike has some 51 models, not all of them e-mountain bikes, but many of them are specialized. Uh, A big brand in the industry has just announced its first e-mountain bike. I think it's called the Levo, um, and they did some press on it and have a slick video out. So we know there's a push from that direction. There's pushback, of course, from the traditional mountain bike uh, community that would like to see their trails kept in order and not be crowded by e-mountain bikes. So we know 
there's going to be something that's going to someone's going to have to compromise or move a little on their position here. Uh, we're going to keep the electronic thing going, uh, remaining plugged in here on the Pace Line. Shimano has brought electronic shifting to its XT group. That is next on the Pace Line. Both uh, IMBA and the industry really want to get in front of this. We don't want to just push a bunch of product out there um, and have it cause problems. The Pace Line is back. Fatty, Patrick, and Michael. And guys, we head into the garage and find another new group set. This one from Shimano. Their XT line has received the DI2 treatment. Patrick did a write-up on the announcement of this group, and folks can read that at redkiteprayer.com. But I will start by saying that the uh, pricing on the XT DI2, Patrick, is welcome. The one-by group is $773. The two-by uh, due to the additional second shifter and front derailleur, is about 1100 Does that include brakes, Patrick? Yeah, it's a full group, you know? Wow. Uh, so if you choose to buy, uh, you know, a frame set from somebody, you know, say an Ibis Mojo or something like that, uh, and want to build it up yourself, yeah, you're not going to spend, you know, 2500 three grand on just a group. It's a really affordable group. Fatty, you are out in the... Hurricane, hurricane-like winds over the weekend. <laughs> Do you think um, ease of shifting would have made your day any better? Do you see yourself going, oh, if I was just not having to focus on all this clicking and ratcheting and I was just pushing buttons, mm-hmm. does that make life sound better to you? Well, I, I rode with the XTR DI2 all last year. Um, so I do have experience with the, with the synchro shifting and... Uh, while it wouldn't have mattered to me a ton um, last weekend because it's you know it was just you know big climb for five miles descend for eight miles you know so not you know you find the gear you want pretty early and then there's not a lot of shifting but for most riding where there is a lot of shifting if you um, the XTR Di2 last year you know riding it for a full season was such a pleasure and synchro shifting is just fantastic you know I, I i removed the left shift paddle off of the cannondale fsi that i was loaned for the season and just uh had the front and rear derailleur shifting essentially uh, you know according to the pattern that uh came stock with the bike because that worked fine for me and never having to think about uh, front derailleur, rear derailleur, you know, you got good shifts all the time, very fast. Uh, if XT is as good as the XTR DI2 at this price, wow, I am super tempted, super tempted. And Patrick, you, you get everything you would expect from XTR in the XT package, right? I mean, there's no missing movements or features. It's just what weight savings mostly, right? Right, right. But you know, it, there's there's more to the difference between XTR and XT than just weight. And it's a really significant one in that, um, you know, for 95% of all riders, XTR is really an inappropriate choice. It truly is a racer's group. When I ride that stuff at demo events, um, you know, in press intros, um, I do what I can to get back off of it pretty quickly because I simply break too much. In, in their quest to make that group so light, uh, there's not a big volume of fluid in there. And they use mineral oil instead of dot fluid, and that's easier to boil. And so what I find myself doing is actually you know, heating the fluid up and getting that brake pump uh, on descents. And so I'm not really a good enough descender to, to use XTR um, basically properly. It's truly a racer's group. And, um, I mean, gosh, I'm a fairly quick descender. So I'm always relieved to get back on Diori XT and use that instead. And it is truly, you know, it's, it's robust in a really helpful way. And it's a much more appropriate choice for the vast majority of all serious riders out there. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the new XT Group obviously was on display at Sea Otter. Actually, they did the announcement, I think, the night before Sea Otter, but in the Shimano booth, it was prominent. Uh, Patrick and I also got a look at, in person, SRAM Eagle, which we've talked about here on the Pace Line. They're, tw- they're 1 by 12 group with the massive 1050 cassette. I don't know, Patrick, I didn't. It was great to see in person. I don't think I learned anything new about the group set other than it's as beautiful as they said it was. Um, and it was it was out there for all to see at Sea Otter. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll grant I've not been a big believer of one by so far, but Eagle is going to kill it. Uh, Eagle yeah. is going to make one by you know a truly legitimate thing. You know, I think I could take that to Lake Sonoma and not regret the day. I, not that I did regret my Sonomas race there, but that was a, a really, really difficult day where I wanted more gear, and I think Eagle would give me everything I was looking for. We also passed by the Scott booth to see them basking in the glory of their win at Paris-Roubaix uh, with Matthew Heyman, of course, aboard one of their bikes. Patrick, I think we stared at that Scott foil on display, an aero bike, for like five minutes, wondering how one survives on such a ride over the mashing that is the hell of the north. Uh, just th- what we did notice was ample tire clearance. Yeah. He, he, I mean, they really did build great tire clearance in that thing. Even if it, the day had been wet, he could have gotten through the course on that. I mean, we're not talking like cyclocross, but there was, you know, even for 28s, there was clearance. And that's not something that I've ever seen on another aero frame. Um, I was floored. Yep. Of the eight riders from Orica Greenage who raced Roubaix, four chose the Solace, which is uh, more of their endurance road bike. Two were on the Attic, and actually two riders, not just one, were on that Scott Foil, an aero bike. There's plenty to read about from Sea Otter uh, on Red Kite Prayer, and on future shows, we'll have more interviews on some interesting topics and products we ran into at Sea Otter. All right, guys, the pace line uh, out of carbs. So let's uh, wrap it up. And since we're hungry, let's first check in with Fatty and see what's happening on the Fatty Cast. And has ask that is how the cereal diet is going, Fatty. <laughs> oh well, the cereal diet. If I were actually sticking to it, I would probably be enjoying uh, a diet for the first time in my life, which is just eat cold cereal with milk all the time. Um, the fact that I am not actually adhering to that diet and, in fact, avoiding that diet is probably a good thing for me, but I still would wish I were eating Captain Crunch right now. Well, you know what? Uh, your, blog, your, your, your blog post got me. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I was convinced you were on the cereal good. diet. And, no, Let's you laid it. it out perfectly. You're like, here's how <laughs> to manage the cereal. You can eat cereal all day long. You can be like, like Jerry Seinfeld and just eat cereal and manage your calories and probably mm-hmm. lose weight. Now, nutrient-wise, <laughs> you'd be in a deficit. But well, what could possibly go wrong? It's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was just me showing that. I mean, theoretically, yes, you could take anything and make a diet out of it. And uh, I, it, it was, it was definitely a wishful thinking post. <laughs> well, I started off this show, the Pace Line, with a bowl of cereal Perfect. in your honor. Perfect. What's coming up on the Fatty Cast? On the Fatty Cast, I am actually going to be posting um, a interview I did with Rich Dillon of uh, Bad Idea Racing. Uh, he is, you know, he, he's been blogging for as long as I have, and he's just a funny guy who rides a single speed and has a really great sense of humor. So, a really fun Fatty Cast coming up this week. Cool. Uh, Redkiteprayer.com is the home of the Pace Line, and where Patrick, you will have. More from Monterey, I gather. Yeah, there will be a post or two uh, from Sea Otter, uh, a piece about the um, the e-mountain bike race I, I did, and some more thoughts on that. And then uh, I believe you and I are both planning to do stuff on Super Sweetwater, the latest grasshopper that occurred. Yep, I learned a whole new lesson on life <laughs> on the slopes of Fort Ross in western Sonoma County. So. Look for that uh, new material coming up on redkiteprayer.com. Hey, you can also find the Pace Line on iTunes, Stitcher, and guess what, guys? We're on Google Play Music. Uh, Google just announced that it's adding podcasts to Google Play Music. So we are there as well. And no matter where you get us, especially if it's iTunes, please uh, leave us a rating on the show. That really helps out a lot. And your comments, of course, are welcome 
at redkiteprayer.com. Go ahead. Let us know what you think about the show, good or bad. We're always uh, willing to hear and uh, read those comments. So for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you next time on The Pace Line. That's Coco Puffs! Chocolatey tasting Cocoa Puffs, a part of this balanced breakfast with 10 important vitamins and minerals. <laughs> Being Cocoa sure has its ups and downs. 